We are in the midst of a series called His Story, and the whole point of this series is to step back for a moment, and we, we often look at our Bible and say, you know, it's just a whole bunch of different stories, or, you know, maybe it's just a whole bunch of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. But when we step back and begin to look at the Bible as a whole, we will recognize that there is one grand narrative that runs all throughout all, the entire scripture, and that is a story of a father in pursuit of his prodigal children. And so what we're doing over the course of these next few months is we are exploring, we are following the thread of that story from beginning to end. And for those of you who were here with, with us last week, we talked about the fact that God is the creator of everything. He spoke the universe into existence with his words. And then, like a divine artist, he begins to mold and shape it, bring order to the chaos. And then we talked about the fact that we, humanity, was the, la- the final and, and kind of the pinnacle of his creation because he chose to create us in a different way. Rather than just speaking us into existence, he got down and breathed the breath of life into our lungs. And he created us in his image. Now, when we talk about that, we, we, we discussed last week that we don't necessarily mean that we look exactly like him, although that's possible, but rather, and, and we didn't even want to like try to mince like exactly what are the characteristics that we're like our God, because that's not the point of what Scripture is trying to say. There are certainly characteristics, and we talked a little bit about them. But the main point was, as his image bearers, we have been endowed with a responsibility to be his representatives on earth. He created us to have dominion over his creation as his representatives. We have been given the responsibility of being caretakers and stewards. Furthermore, we talked about the fact that we were not created to do life alone. We were created to be in community just like our God is in community with himself. But there was a couple of things as we were working through Genesis chapter 2, and so I'm going to invite you to turn there. If you have a Bible, open it up. If you do not have a Bible, there's probably one in the seat in front of you. Grab it because I'd really like you to follow along. We are going to camp in Genesis chapter 3, but before we get there, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 2 to look at one thing that was a little interesting that we noticed last week, and I want to explore that because I think it says a lot about who God is. And that's found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Because God is the voice, the only voice that we hear through the first two chapters of Genesis. And we hear in verse 16 that God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Which leads me to ask the question, well, wait a minute, God created everything, didn't he? He could have created creation without any things that were off limits. Why would he choose to put something that was off limits that had the potential to wreak so much havoc? And today we're going to look at the, the ramifications of, why that, of that tree being there. But before we even get to the ramifications of man and woman's disobedience, I want to ask the question, why would God put that there in the first place? And I'm going to answer it the way Jesus would often answer questions. I'm going to answer that question with another question. Why would God create at all? Was God bored? Was he lonely? I mean, in Scripture, we, re- we learn that he is three in one. He is a community in and of himself. Some theologians have, have suggested that the reason God created was solely to glorify himself. And to be sure... All of creation sings the praises of God. If we were to remain silent, even the rocks would cry out. The heavens declare God's glory. So in some ways, we could say that 
creation glorifies God, but I don't think that's the only reason he created. In fact, I don't think that's the primary reason he created. Other, th- other people, and I, I would tend to find myself in this camp, have suggested that the reason God created was because he desired to have relationship with his creation. I mean, think about this for a moment. If God created solely to glorify himself, then why would he be willing to take on human flesh, to humble himself to the point of limiting himself, walk amongst his creation, and then suffer the most gruesome and humiliating death that humanity could come up with? Why would he be willing to take upon himself the punishment that we had earned through our own disobedience? Because he loved us. Because he desired relationship. And that's precisely what he did. So we go back to the question of why did he play... Oh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Because here's the thing. If he desired to have relationship, then we have to ask the question, what, are the, what needs to be there in order to have a genuine relationship? Because here, I could, I, if I had any computer designing skills, if I was Mark Strachan, and I'm like, I want to make a computer that loves me, I might program it so that every time I turned it on, it said, good morning, Eric, I love you. And I would do it in such a way that it doesn't sound like a computer. I'd actually give it a human voice so it's much more personal. But let me ask you, would that computer have the ability to love me? No. Why? Because it doesn't have the ability not to love me. It is simply doing its programming. It is following the steps that I have laid out for it. It cannot genuinely love because it doesn't have the option not to love. In contrast, think about my kids. Man, I will tell you, every time that I hear Grayson, like, Dad, I love you, or Ethan say, you know, I, I love you, Daddy. Would you cuddle with me? Oh, my goodness, it melts my heart. Why? Because they can just as easily and often do say, go away, we want Mommy. Every night I go to put Ethan to bed. No, Daddy, I want Mommy to cuddle with me. It's like, all right. So the nights that he says, Daddy, would you cuddle? Would you hold my hand? Oh, it melts my heart. Because they have the option to reject my love. They have the option to reject being close to me. And that's why their choice to want to be close to me means so dang much to me. Here's the point I'm trying to make. In order to have genuine relationship, we must have free will. We must have the ability to choose whether to be in relationship or not be in relationship. We must have the ability to choose to obey or not to obey. The ability to choose to move towards or to move away from. Otherwise, we're just fulfilling programming and we may do exactly what he wants, but it's not going to be very glorifying. Which leads us back to our original question. Why did God choose to place a tree that was off limits in the middle of the garden of good, uh, in the middle of the garden, because he chose to give mankind free will, and he was giving us a choice of whether to obey or disobey, submit to his lordship and to trust him, or reject his lordship and trust ourselves. And unfortunately, or perhaps we probably should say inevitably, Adam and Eve, our fir- our, our most distant ancestors chose to disobey. And what we're going to look at today is the devastating ramifications that that choice made. So turn with me now to Genesis chapter 3. And we're actually going to start in the very last verse 
of chapter 2. And like we did last week, we're going to just work through this chapter. We're going to dig into it. We're going to mine it for all it has to say. But the very last verse we see in Genesis chapter 2 said, Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, were both naked, both exposed, both vulnerable, and yet they felt no shame. They felt absolutely comfortable being fully known, fully visible to one another. This is the type of innocent creation that God has made, where we can be fully known by one another, fully known by him, without shame. But unfortunately, it doesn't, st- it doesn't stay that way. Now, up to this point, as we've mentioned, there was really only one voice that we've heard, and that's the voice of God, both speaking everything into existence and then guiding and directing his creation, specifically man, his representatives on earth giving them direction in how to live in their responsibilities, warning them away from things that he knew would be destructive. But now, right at the very very beginning of chapter 3, we are introduced to a new voice, a voice that is going to begin to undermine God's voice, that's going to begin to offer a counter perspective that's going to question the, the... the veracity, the truthfulness of God's voice. And although the scripture is only going to refer to this being as the serpent, we find from other passages, most, most uh, particularly in Revelation, Satan is referred to as the serpent time and again. And we learn from other scriptures that it was Satan entering into the serpent, speaking through him, using him to tempt Although it was a physical created being, it was really Satan who is the one who's tempting behind, and that's going to, to play out. Okay, verse, or chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you may not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, God didn't actually say you may not touch it. And he was speaking to Adam before Eve was ever created. He said, you may not eat the fruit from the tree in the garden or, you, or from that particular tree or you will die. And then Adam tells his wife, and it's like that game of telephone where things get added on and changed and stuff. So now Eve's going, well, you know, we can't eat it and we can't touch it or we'll die. Listen to the serpent's response. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. I find it so interesting the way that the serpent approaches this. Because he doesn't just come head on and go, Who look, fruit, delicious, doesn't it look good? Don't you want some? Instead, he begins by questioning God's goodness and God's trustworthiness. He begins to undermine whether God truly has their best interest in mind and whether God truly can be trusted. Oh, you're not going to die. He's holding out on you. He knows that he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to have the abilities he has. He's made you deficient. That's why I told you not to eat. I, I think so often when it comes to sin in our lives, sin does not begin with the act. It doesn't even kind of stem from the temptation. A lot of times, our choice to sin actually begins in our perspective of who God is in relationship to us. 
When we begin to doubt God's goodness, when we begin to question God's trustworthiness, when we begin to think, does God really have my best interest in mind? Does God even notice me and care? And when we begin to answer those questions in the negative, no, he doesn't, I don't even show up on his radar. Does he not see what I'm going through and how uncomfortable this is? I need control and he's not being in control and I just feel out of control, so... I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And then we begin to look around desperately for anything that might give us control over those things that we feel like we need or those things that we are terrified of. We begin to look for what we might call functional saviors, things that can save us from our feeling out of control. And for Adam and Eve, this fruit was the perfect epitome of a functional savior because all of a sudden they're thinking, you know what? You're right. God's holding out on us. There's something deficient about us. We don't know the difference between good and evil. He didn't make us perfect. And we need that. And this fruit can give us that. Well, then we should eat it. And this leads the man and the woman to to choose to reject God's leadership and reject God's caution and take matters into their own hands. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Okay, so Adam can't go, oh, I wasn't there. I wasn't part of that conversation. You know, they they had that conversation. She brought the fruit. I didn't know where it came from. He's standing next to her. He's the one who literally out of God's lips heard, don't eat the fruit or you will die. And yet he doesn't say a word. He never pushes back. And by his silence, he tacitly approves of her choice to eat. And then she hands it to him, and he eats. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. Let's stop there for a moment. Were they suddenly stripped bare? No, they've been naked the whole time. And yet in this moment, suddenly... After eating of the fruit, after disobeying God, as sin enters into his good creation, it brings a tag along, shame with it. This is the first instance of shame in God's good creation. And they suddenly realize they're naked and it's not okay in their opinion. They've been naked up to this point and felt no shame whatsoever and they were perfectly okay with it. But now suddenly, it's not okay. They feel insecure because they feel inadequate. They feel unacceptable. They feel embarrassed and they feel most, more, most importantly, they feel vulnerable. I'm not okay in and of myself. And so they do what any of us do when we tend to feel vulnerable. They try to rectify that. They try to protect themselves. And so they begin to look for anything that they can. They grasp at the first thing that they can find to cover over their nakedness, to cover over their vulnerability, to cover over their, their innate feeling of inadequacy. And they grab fig leaves. We finish reading in verse 7. They, opened their, they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. In their feeling of vulnerability and shame, they do what comes naturally to any of us. They try to cover it over. Now, we're a little bit, we've had a little bit more time than Adam and Eve to really think through our coverings because we all wear fig leaves. We all cover over our vulnerability. For them, it was a tangible fig leaf. For us, it takes on a lot of different forms. When we begin to feel inadequate, 
we recognize that I just don't measure up. In many ways, we've sat in judgment upon ourselves. We've weighed ourselves, we've measured ourselves, and we've found ourselves wanting. And we recognize if anybody knew the real me, they'd reject me. Or if anybody knew this part of me, they'd be disgusted. Or I'm not like other people, and, and I'm embarrassed. And so we start trying to cover that up with things. We cover over our vulnerability so that we cannot be rejected. And our fig leaves take on the form of things like acting, right? Inside, we feel anxious. We feel overwhelmed. We feel terrified, fearful that we'll be found out, that we'll be seen for the weak, broken person that we really are. Maybe we feel a little bit jealous about other people who have more than us or maybe have been more blessed than us in certain areas, but that's not acceptable. And so we choose to cover those parts of ourselves up. I'm okay. We put on a smile that's only skin deep, whereas inside we're broken, we're anxious, we're judgmental. But we put on that smiling face and go, oh, it's good to see you, and oh, yeah, I'm fine. How you doing? Good, good. Because nobody can ever know that inside we're really falling apart, and we feel overwhelmed, and we feel completely and utterly inadequate. So we act as if we're not, and we hope that nobody else will realize just how inadequate we really are. Now, the funny thing is we don't tend to realize how inadequate one another are because we're also focused on our own inadequacy, you know? So we're just kind of like, okay, we're just going to accept one another's fig leaves. Everybody knows when we go, how you doing? Oh, good. We know that's not true. But we don't want to really go in because either A, we don't want other people to call us on our fig leaves, or B, we just don't want to take the time to find out what's really going on because that's messy, right? That's one way that we hide. That's one fig leaf that we wear is the fig leaf of acting. Another fig leaf is, is we don't feel good enough in and of ourselves, so we feel like we need to make up for that. We try to become adequate. We try to become acceptable. And we do so through either achievement, right? Doing lots of good things, climbing the corporate ladder. Maybe it's a physical thing. We go to the gym a whole bunch and we starve ourselves in order to look a certain way or we dress a certain way and spend money that we don't have to impress people that we don't know. We do anything we can to look good enough on the outside, to achieve success so that people will be impressed with us and accept us. Or we accumulate things. We go buy stuff because somehow that affirms us. We try to keep up with the Joneses, and they run really quickly. So accumulation or achievement, being good enough just through our own efforts is another fig leaf that we wear. A third fig leaf that we wear, and this is one that in particular for us guys, is either anger or apathy. You know, you know some of us have gotten the idea that emotion is weakness, that the only viable emotions are either anger or apathy. It just doesn't matter. It's not that big a deal. It doesn't affect me. And this isn't true of all of us, for sure. There are many of us guys who are very comfortable with our emotions, but I've found for myself that when I start getting triggered, Kathy and I start getting into it, and I feel inadequate as a husband. I don't feel like I, I know even how to approach her. I mean, we've been married for 10 years, and there's still moments where I go, I don't know what to say right now that won't get me in trouble. I know I'm probably the only one who feels that way sometimes. And in that moment, I feel so unbelievably inadequate that I respond one of two ways. Fight or flight, right? Anger or apathy. Fight it head on. I start raising my voice. I start coming at her because I know how to do that, right? And 
the fault is with you. You're asking me to do something I don't know how to do and I can't admit. I don't know what to say right now and I'm really sorry. So I fight it or I fly, I fly away. Cross my arms, check out. Nod my head as if I'm listening, but I'm not listening. Or the safer option, walk out of the room because that always fixes everything. <laughs> fight or fight. Fight or flight, anger, apathy. It is a response, a fig leaf to cover over our vulnerability and our feelings of inadequacy. And the final one, and I know that there are myriad other fig leaves we could look at in your small groups. You're going to explore these a little bit more this week. But the last one that so many of us run to is that of anesthetization, which is just a big word for we try to dull the pain. When we start feeling overwhelmed when we start feeling inadequate and we can't handle that and we, we don't feel like we can fix it, we start to numb out. Now, some of us run to literal drugs, alcohol, drugs, nicotine, things like that to numb the pain. But sometimes those drugs of choice that we run to, to, to dull the pain, take on other forms such as busyness, exercise, pornography, shopping, food, television, or books. We run to these things because they distract us. We don't have to feel what we're feeling when we're doing other things and we're distracted. So they numb the pain and help us get by another day without actually having to look at what's really going on underneath. Now remember, the reason we run to these fig leaves is innate. We are terrified of vulnerability. And in one shape, one form or another, we feel inadequate and we're terrified that somebody else is going to find out. And sometimes we're terrified that we will have to admit that to ourselves because we don't like to be inadequate. We don't like to be weighed, measured, and found wanting. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve do. They grab the closest thing at hand to cover over their nakedness because they feel inadequate. Let's keep reading. Verse 8, after they sow fig leaves and cover themselves, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Can you imagine having God actually relate physically with like walking through the garden, wanting to interact and talk with you? And yet here's their response. They heard the sound of the Lord God in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They hid from him and we do that so often when we feel like we've screwed up when we feel like we have fallen short, our first response is go hide. Go clean ourselves up. Make it better, right? Get, get a little bit of time. Time heals everything. So we'll just go hide for a little while like a dog who's been in injured. He's going to lick his wounds. And then when we feel like we're adequate again, then come back into his presence rather than recognizing that God is the divine physician. And he alone is the only one who can truly clean us up. But that's our, that's our tendency is to run away and hide. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now comes the first example of the victim mentality. It's not my fault. Adam answered, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's not my fault, it's her fault. 
Then the God asked the woman, what is it you've done? The serpent, he deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, all right, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will, you will be in conflict with one another between her, your offspring and hers. And remember, he's speaking both to the serpent that was used in this, the physical creature that was created, but also to Satan who has used this serpent as the vehicle of temptation to be that second voice speaking in and questioning God's goodness and his trustworthiness. And so he also is foreshadowing what is to come when he says, he, the woman's offspring, will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. And it is a perfect picture of the conflict that goes on between Satan and Jesus. Satan, the serpent, And Jesus, the offspring of the woman, ultimately the one who will undo what Adam and Eve have done in the garden, who will usher back in the ability to have relationship. And ultimately, it would be Christ on the cross who would crush the enemy underfoot. And yet he would still continue to be striking, trying to take down Jesus any way that he can. That's something we're going to be looking at a lot in a month or two. So he curses the snake. Then he turns to the woman. And he said to the woman... I will make your pain in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. And Brenda Garboskis right now is saying, thank you, Eve, as she is preparing to have her second born. And he goes on. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, I want to point out that in our English versions, that sounds a lot like you're going to be really attracted to your husband and want to spend time with him and be close to him, and he'll rule over you, you know, in a loving, gentle way, but that is absolutely not what he's saying there. Because the next time that the word desire, remember your desire will be for your husband, the next time that word desire is used is in the very next chapter when God is speaking to Cain, Adam and Eve's firstborn son. And Cain is angry because his brother Abel has won the favor of God, and Cain didn't quite win that, and so he's jealous. And God says to him, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires, same word, it desires to have you, but you must master it. And he doesn't. And ultimately, he kills his brother because sin gains mastery over him. So when we read this, I want us to understand that what he's saying is you, ladies, You, Eve, will seek to control your husband, will seek to fix your husband because you will find him to be deficient as a leader. You will try to usurp his position and try to lead him and dominate him. But he doesn't stop just with her because then he says, and he will rule over you. That's the same term used for a king over his subjects. In other words, you're going to try to fix him, try to control him, and he's going to domineer you. And so we see right here at the very beginning, as a result of the fall, God tweaking the marriage relationship. No longer will they operate as a seamless, suitable pair, partners, in this whole, you know, caring for God's good creation. Suddenly there is conflict in the marital relationship. We're going to talk about why in just a moment, but I want to move on to the man's curse for just a moment. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. Until you, uh, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For from dust you are, and to dust you will return. So we see God cursing the ground and saying, I'm going to frustrate this earth. You were created in part to work and take care of my creation, but now the ground isn't going to cooperate as easily. Work is going to become labor. I'm frustrating the work of your hands, and it is going to be a lot harder for you to eat. And ultimately, you're going to labor and labor and labor throughout your life to get enough to eat until you finally die and return to the earth for dust to dust. And we read this and we go, man, God, punitive, harsh. But I would suggest that God is not just being punitive. Because remember, this is a grand epic narrative and we have all of scripture to speak into the heart of God. And I would suggest that what simply on the surface might look harsh and punitive is actually merciful. God has the right to strike him dead. Death will be a part of what comes in through this. But he doesn't strike them dead in the moment. Instead, he tweaks some things. And I would suggest that he does this for a reason, a very specific reason. Remember, the story of God is that of a father in pursuit of his prodigal children. And even in this discipline, God is pursuing his children. God is seeking relationship. Because here's the thing. God recognizes our propensity to just run after what we want. He recognizes our our tendencies to try to fix things on our own, to be good enough, to, to take matters into our own hands, right? And when he recognizes that, he says, I don't want you to go through life trying to fix this yourself. I don't want you to go through life thinking that you have to be good enough. Ultimately, I want relationship with you. So I am going to frustrate the very things that you will most naturally find your identity through. For the woman, your, your identity as a mother and your identity as a wife, as a partner in marriage. For the man, through the work of your hands. No longer will these things satisfy and be able to fulfill you completely. In a way, God is cutting out a God-shaped hole in every single one of us and saying, only I can fill this. Now, you're going to go looking to other things to try to fill it, but it will never fully satisfy. It'll never be enough. And in that instance, I would suggest that God is not only being just, because remember, God can't simply turn his back and go, you know, you've sinned, but I'm just going to ignore it because I love you. Because that's not being just. So there is a consequence to the choices that they make, but... He's also showing himself to be merciful. He doesn't strike us dead immediately. He doesn't just start over altogether. Nor does he reject us completely. He says, I'm going to frustrate the things that you will turn to to be adequate so that the only place you can find your adequacy is in me. Ultimately, you're going to try to run and you're going to try to find satisfaction and fulfillment in other things. But at the end of the day, you're going to find that they are simply unfulfilling until you find your fulfillment in me. And then, as we're kind of coming to the end of chapter 3, God does for Adam and Eve what they were unable to do for themselves. Verse 21. 
The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Remember, in their vulnerability, they'd grab the closest thing at hand, fig leaves, to try to cover over their nakedness, and God says, that's not going to do it. So the very first death recorded in all of creation is an animal that gives its skin to cover over man's nakedness. It's foreshadowing of what God will ultimately bring into effect through the sacrificial system where death would cover over the penalty of sin. Another death for us. And this animal died in the place of man and woman in that moment to cover their nakedness. And it will be foreshadowing even more of the ultimate sacrifice. God in human flesh going to the cross to pay the penalty so that his blood covers over our sin. But in this moment, the first death covers their nakedness. And then God says, you can't reside here in Garden of Eden anymore. This is no longer your home. It's time for you to go. And he kicks them out. Now, we've looked at a lot of these things. But any time that I get into Scripture, the, question I'm, the number one question I'm always asking, God bless you. The number one question I'm always asking is, so what? Why, how does this affect us? tangibly, how does this play out in our lives? Well, I suspect that every single one of us recognizes the effects of sin in our lives. Every single one of us recognizes uh, the presence of evil and brokenness in this world. One thing, and I totally skipped it, earlier when we were talking about why God would allow the tree to be in the garden of good and evil, I'm sorry, you know what I mean. Why, why he would place the tree of good, the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. Um, we talked about God placed it there to give us a choice. By the way, that's the same answer I would give to anybody who asks, well, why is there evil? If God is a good God, why is there evil in his good creation? I think C.S. Lewis sums it up the best in, in probably his most, most best well-known book uh, that's not the Chronicles of Narnia, the Mere Christianity. He says this, <laughs> This is what he said about free will. He said, if a thing is free to be good, it's also free to be bad. And free will is what has made all evil possible. Why then did God give mankind free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that work like machines, would hardly be worth creating. And he winds this this thought up with, of course God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it was worth the risk. Why is there evil in the world? Because God, who desires genuine relationship with us, has given us the freedom to choose to obey or not to obey, to trust him or not to trust him, to follow him or to reject his lordship and try to follow our own ways. Furthermore, I think every single one of us can identify with this feeling of vulnerability, this feeling of inadequacy. We feel like we don't measure up. We're terrified other people are going to find out about that, and so we do the thing that comes most naturally. We cover it up. We we strap on fig leaves all over the place. We pretend we've got it together when we don't. We accumulate, we, we strive to be good enough so that people will accept us. And in the process of hiding so that other people cannot reject us, the sad truth is they never actually get to know the real us because all they get to know is what we allow them to know. They get to know our Facebook profile. 
the things we're proud of. And the real us gets lost in the background to the point where we begin to to think our fig leaves are the real us and we don't even realize that we've lost, we have lost sight of who we really are. The sad truth is this happens because we have first and foremost sat in judgment upon ourselves. It's ironic that in our fear of being judged, we have actually judged ourselves. We have deemed ourselves to be inadequate. We have deemed ourselves to be unacceptable. And so we hide. And nobody ever really gets to know us. But is there an alternative? My challenge for all of us, the so what this morning is that we were not created to do life alone. We were not created to live lives covered in fig leaves. We were created to be known and to know one another. And the scary way to begin to be known is to come out of hiding. The first step in that The first step is to risk vulnerability and it's a personal vulnerability because the first step is to acknowledge that we have fig leaves and to actually take a look at them and to begin to understand what's underneath them. Now, this is scary because I don't think we like to realize our inadequacy or I don't think we enjoy finding the ways in which we are missing it. We'd rather just numb it out, you know, cover it over, numb out and go on with life. The courageous step is to go, God, I need your help. I don't even know the ways I hide, or maybe I do, but I don't even want to look at why I do that. But there's, there's some junk there, and I've been almost shoving it in a closet, hoping that the closet can hold it in there so that the rest of my life looks clean. But I'm, would you give me the courage to open the door to that closet and begin to take those things out? And would you give me the ability to see myself the way you see me? Because quite honestly, when I look in that closet, I'm disgusted. I'm disappointed. And I recognize just how far short I have fallen. You, go, you tell me to be holy as you're holy, man, I don't feel holy with that closet full of junk. And I don't know what to do with it. Quite honestly, those are things that I have run to to find solace. Those are things that have become so much a part of my life that I don't even know myself apart from these things. I have to have another boyfriend When I break up, I run to the next relationship because I don't like me by myself. I'm not adequate by myself. I need someone. I can't lay down this drug of choice because I can't handle how I feel and I need something to take the edge off. I don't want to let other people in because I'm terrified that I would be rejected and it would simply affirm what I have feared most that I am unacceptable, that I am inadequate. May I be the first to say that I, Eric Wayman, am inadequate by myself. And I am so grateful that I have a Father in heaven who doesn't expect me to be adequate by myself. He has chosen to make me adequate by calling me his own. And that's a beautiful part of the story that we're going to get to later another day. But for right now, I want to ask you guys, as we come into a time of response, as the worship team comes up, I want to invite you to take a courageous step, either now or this week, 
and sit in God's presence and allow him to begin to pull back the edges of the fig leaves. Allow him to begin to show you the ways in which you have been hiding and then to show you what's underneath that. I pray for courage. I pray that you would begin to see yourself as God sees you. And then I, my prayer is that you would be willing to take a courageous step of letting one other person in. I have a group of guys that I meet with on Tuesday mornings. They know every aspect of my life, the things that I'm happy to post on Facebook and the things that I would never consider posting on Facebook because I'm ashamed of them. The beautiful thing is that when the enemy, when Satan, who is not only the tempter, but is also our accuser, and he loves those shadow areas of our lives because he come in and comes in and he goes, if anybody knew about this, they'd be disgusted. You'd better hide. You'd better pretend. And when he comes in and he says things like that, I can point to them and I can point to my wife and I go, they know. And they love me in spite of those things. So get the heck away from me. You have no authority here. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Father, we are inadequate. And it's liberating to say that because we feel it. We fear it. And yet when we speak it, it takes the fear away. Because every single one of us was born inadequate, born with a God-shaped hole that only you can fill. And the beautiful thing about your word is that we find our adequacy, we find our purpose, we find our value in you. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are a work of art created by a master artisan and created for a purpose. And God, we acknowledge that the fig leaves we've thrown on and the ways in which we've hidden have actually gotten in the way of us being able to be used by you. Would you help us to come out of hiding so that we can be your man and your woman used powerfully for your kingdom's sake to bring you glory and so that we can do it in relationship with not only one another but with you. God, give us the courage not only to acknowledge but to face our fig leaves and what they cover up. And I pray that you would surround us with others that we can be vulnerable with. We desire to be known and to know. Would you crush the shame in us? I thank you. We look forward to the day when there will be no more tears, no more shame, no more sin, where we just get to spend eternity with you. But for now, in light of the cross and yet recognizing that we still live in enemy-occupied territory and we still have an enemy that's gunning to take us down, would you give us the strength to stand today? Would you help us to see ourselves as you see us? Would you help us to love ourselves so that we have something to be able to love others with as well? May we be the first ones who step off of the, <laughs> who stop judging ourselves. 
who stop pointing the finger and passing the blame. May we be agents of reversing this curse in this world, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplaces. For your name's sake, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to take an offering. And if you have connection cards,